I mentioned earlier, it's all about love, the effects of biblical love. Uh, I wrote down here, love changes things, and we can see that on the most basic of levels, and I just decided to use an illustration from the pet category. Um, A dog that is loved uh, seeks closeness, and if you're one of my dogs, apparently constant contact with the family that it loves and who loves it, because love changes its behavior. A cat, which I'm more of a cat person because there's no loyalty in a cat and less love, but not known for their loyalty and love. I found out that when they're supremely content uh, with their people, they'll actually drool. I learned that from our vet. Um, I thought the cats had a condition because we would hold them, they'd shake their head and moisture would fly. And I would tell Heather, take the cat to the vet. It's gross. It needs help. Uh, Come to find out, our vet said, no, the cat is just happy It's loved and it drools, and when it shakes its head, it is slinging drool around. Still not thrilled with it, but uh, love changes its behavior. Uh, I write, if you can test that theory by attempting uh, to grab an unloved cat. You ever picked one of those up? I have. It was one of mine. It didn't, it wasn't the most loved one. It bit through my nail. So it was, it was a fun experience there. That's an unloved cat. Uh, If you've ever petted a um, dog that is had some cruelty from humanity. The only contact you're going to get uh, is with its teeth. I've been bitten by a dog before, thus my hesitation to pet any other animal except my own. But uh, you see this, love changes things. From needing to be near you and to be petted and to be loved and be connected and to manifest love back to you to an animal that is going to bite and fight and scratch and do whatever it can to get away from you. Love changes your behavior. And what's interesting is even with animals, you look at them, it changes how they act because an animal that is loved then manifests love themselves to the person or family that loves them. Well, as believers, we are supremely loved. And the author of that true love, just in case you're wondering, God expects his children to manifest his love to a world in desperate need of real love. And I'm going to use that word real or truly uh, throughout the message because we have oftentimes a very confused look at love. The world defines love and it's very self-centered. It's very self-serving and their expression of love is to get something back. It's an expression of themselves. And so what we're going to see here, constantly say real love. And what I want us to realize is that we are loved by Christ, by God, and God expects us to manifest love to the church, to him, and to the world. And that's not something that's up for grabs or something you can pick. He is commanding us to manifest his love to a world that desperately needs to see and feel real love. He expects us to make clear who God is and what he has done by how we care for each other and by extension, the whole of humanity. And I'm going to mention that as well, because oftentimes as the church, we lose sight of the fact that we're called to love one another. And that's actually how we manifest our faith to the world is how we love the church, love God's children. And that then is the testimony to the world out there. Uh, We're to show the real effect of biblical love to all the world because, and there's four different points here. The first one, love reflects God's character. Love reflects God's character. Look at verse seven and eight. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. That is the source of real love. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, 
for God is love. Love reflects God's character. It points to the Savior. I wrote an illustration, and, and uh, Heather was telling me this. I have five kids. If you don't know that, I tend to pick on the youngest one because he's just immune to what's going on. I've chosen him, and he's up for grabs again this morning. So I put here, all my kids manifest Van Hoven characteristics. I love doing Van Hoven illustrations because I get to pick on my dad right away uh, at the same time. Uh, we won't shine in this one, just so you know. Um, the Van Hoven characteristics, but my youngest, Clayton, always seems to vocalize them. So we all have Van Hoven characteristics. Clay informs you of them. Um, when I hear him say certain things, I literally can go back in time and I hear my brothers and I have a, you know, I come from a family, one sister, six brothers. So when I say brothers, usually it's the brothers talking. I didn't hang out much with my sister. So brothers there, I hear my brothers just talking or even myself saying something. So recently in the holiday season, we took the kids to see a movie here in Culpeper. I forget which one it was, but we walked out of the theater and we're in the parking lot. It's dark and we're walking to our car and a van backs up in front of us. And it wasn't endangering us. It wasn't, it wasn't like we were right close to it, but it did require us to stop walking. You know, we, we had to stop what we were doing and let the van back up. And, and before we could almost come to a stop, this is what Clayton says, without missing a beat. He says, silly van getting in our way. <laughs> and I wanted to say something, a little smart aleck back to him, just because it's fun to mess with a five-year-old, and say, hey, you know, it's a parking lot. There's going to be cars there. Uh, but I couldn't spit it out because I was too busy thinking the same thought he had just articulated. <laughs> Clayton had perfectly reflected some Van Hoven character there to be frustrated at a van in a parking lot because it's in your way. Um, I told you we wouldn't shine well in this one, but either way, that's what it was. But we reflect who we are. As believers, we're to reflect God's character, and one of the critical ways that is done is by reflecting God's love because, and don't miss this, God is love. And this, in these verses here, John repeats, and, and if you're reading scripture, and you should be, uh, this is my chance, my little blurb. If you haven't started a Bible reading plan, I want to challenge you on the back uh, table, the Welcome Center. We have a Bible reading plan. If you would like to follow along uh, with City Lights plan, it goes through all of scripture. I'm not a proponent of telling people read two minutes a day. I think that's trite and small. I'm not trying to pick on somebody, but I think you should read through the Bible in a year. I think you should try. If you've never done it, I want to encourage you to give it a go. If you think that seems insurmountable, at least try to read through the New Testament in a year, and you can follow that plan and do that. Uh, the New Testament's one chapter a day, five days a week, I think it is, and you can get through all the New Testament. Um, side note here, but you should be in God's Word. You should be reading it for yourself. You should be growing. And as you read God's Word, you're going to see something repeated. And if you read these verses, you see the word love repeated over and over again, but you also see repeated that God is love. God defines love. And so if we're going to reflect God's character to the world around us, we must reflect His love because He is God is love. It is one of his attributes. Uh, take a look at the Trinity. God is one God, as Piper notes, in essence and glory, and yet distinct in personhood, so that they have had a personal relationship for all eternity. Another writer says, within that relationship, we find perfect inner Trinitarian love that has characterized God from before time began. God has manifested love within the Trinity before 
Time existed because he's existed for all eternity, never had a beginning. Uh, Take a look at the cross. Even though we were unlovable, unworthy, and steeped in sin, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was no worth in us. There was no lovable characteristic in us. We had no redeemable feature and yet Christ died for us. Now we're to show the church and our world that kind of love. We must understand that we're to be a picture of God's love. We show the world what God's love looks like. What does it look like? It's a self-sacrificing love given to someone who needs it, but not necessarily is deserving of it. It's the love God gave to us, even though we didn't deserve it. If we're to be a picture of his love, we will love with the same self-sacrifice because that love is needed and not because someone is deserving or lovable. Let me give a short application. That means you love the church whether or not the people in the church are lovable or deserve it. I don't know how many times I hear people say, well, I I don't like my church. I don't love the church because the people in there are hypocrites. Well, welcome to the club, buddy. You're right in there with them. You love the church in a self-sacrificing love, not because necessarily it's worthy of love or deserves your love, but because we're to manifest God's love, which is a self-sacrificing love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, describes it clearly. And I know this is read at every wedding under the sun, but we need to recognize what it's saying here. Charity, or love, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, doesn't act in a bad way, seeketh not her own. It's not selfish. It's not about itself. Is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. And that is not just spouse-to-spouse type of love. That's actually the love we're supposed to display to the church. Let's take it a step further. We will be a picture of God's love if we truly know him. Now, we're supposed to picture God's love, but we will picture God's love if we truly know him. God's love is a divine, perfect love that will be expressed through his children. If we know Christ truly and personally, then we have the capacity and experience of loving as he loved. As one commentator notes, uh, the Jewish religionists, scribes, the Pharisees, and other leaders of Jesus' day, as well as the false teachers in the church of John's day, knew a lot about God. They could talk about God. They could articulate God. They could go through Scripture, uh, all the Old Testament Scripture. They could share the law. They could do all those things, but they did not really know him. The absence of God's love in their lives revealed their unregenerate condition as as conclusively as did their faulty theology. So you look at the Pharisees and say, well, they believe wrong. They had the wrong belief. They had the wrong doctrine. Yes, that showed that they were unsaved. But as John is making very clear, if you have zero love, you are also manifesting a condition of the heart. We make God's love known by his love displayed through us. We have to wonder if our world is getting the clearest picture of Christ's love from us. Look, we do not control hearts or conviction or salvation, but we are responsible for how we reflect God's character. So there's a couple questions always. Does your love 
reflect your Lord and Savior's character. If you were to evaluate yourself and how you cared for the church and how you loved God and how you loved the world, would you say, that reflects my Savior's character? Or would we have to say, no, I'm not reflecting it? And I, I put here as a very serious question, and if not, and I'm not saying we're going to perfectly reflect it or that we're going to always see a, a perfect love going through us for sinful beings wrestling with this world and, and our own fleshly desires. But if you see none of God's love reflected in your life, John asked this question, do you really know the Lord and Savior? Because that's the conclusion he's drawing here. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You don't love, then there's no way you know the God who is love. And I think in, in an interesting way, Paul is more blunt, right? He says, examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. He just gives you the straight up command. Take a look at your life. John, in a more flowing manner, is actually screaming at us to examine our lives. Look at your life. What does it show? Does it manifest love out there? Does it show God's love? And if it doesn't, he draws a conclusion. If you don't love, then you don't know God. Be analytical. I would say critical, but no one likes anyone who critiques. Be analytical of your life. Look at it. Be serious. Believers will reflect God's character of love. Not maybe and not even should. They will reflect God's character of love. They will picture it and, in, and will do so specifically because, and this is the second one, love responds to Christ's sacrifice. Love reflects God's character, but love also responds to Christ's sacrifice. Look at verses 9 through 11. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. MacArthur notes this, Jesus Christ is the preeminent manifestation of God's love. Nothing so perfectly shows and proclaims God's love like Christ coming to earth and fulfilling God's redemptive plan for us. Christ perfectly loved us. His love came solely from him. He initiated it. That's important. John makes clear again that God is not responding to our love to him, but instead is giving us love, even though we don't manifest love back towards him. It was never a response to our commitment or our devotion. And his love cost him everything. He paid for us. He was our propitiation, our covering for sin. That's what the word means. So or the payment, or however you look at it, it covers over what's there. And this was his intent. I know we live in a world that's very skeptical, and so they tend to, to push back, or they might look at a historical Christ, and they see this political movement in Rome and in Israel, and they see it all coming together, and they'll talk about the perfect storm and how Christ was then put on the cross in almost an unfortunate climax of, of politics and, and tension, but that would be a wrong representation because Christ came to earth at a specific time so that he could die. It was his intention. It was planned. It didn't happen to him by accident. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 predicted it. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I read that prophecy on purpose because Christ came to do exactly this. What did we do? We wandered. We've gone away. What did Christ do? Bore our stripes, bore our pain, bore our punishment. He died on purpose for us. And that means Christ perfectly propels us to love. Christ perfectly loves us, and then Christ perfectly propels us to love. Uh, Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So when you look at that, when someone says, well, I don't know if I can love the church. Well, you can love the church because Christ loved you, and you're able then to love the church. That is sufficient to move you to love. I wrote down here, we should require no additional motivation. What does that mean? Christ dying for your sins and redeeming you equals you loving the church. It doesn't mean the church has to do something to be loved, but instead you are motivated strictly by Christ's sacrifice. His sacrifice is not only enough, it is perfectly and completely sufficient and enough. No other motivation could or should add to it. It's not just the base motivation, it's all the motivation. Why should you love the church? Why should you love sinners? Why should you reach? Why should you care? Because Christ died for your sins. Because he perfectly loved you and then perfectly propels you to love. Uh, Recognize, as John is writing this, he's removing all the interpersonal relationships and excuses someone can give. That person's not nice. She said mean things about me. They did this. They did that. They didn't invite me to dinner. All those things are washed away because John says we love because he loved us. As John previously stated in 1 John 3, 16, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's nothing about what the brethren are doing. It's all about what Christ has done that then motivates us to love. I mentioned that there should not be any other motivation because other motivation is fickle. If you're motivated to love the church because they dress the way you like or they smell the way you like or they walk the way you like or they drive the car that you like, at some point they're going to smell bad, dress bad, and drive a bad car. It's going to unfold. It's going to fall apart, but nothing will change what Christ has done for us. So we have to ask ourselves, do we respond in love to the church because of the sacrifice of Christ? Is that the motivation for our love? Are we motivated because of the sacrifice of Christ? Are we motivated, and I hope you realize when I'm listing, they walk the way I like, dress the way I like, drive the car I like, are all selfish motivations, right? Because they're contingent on someone pleasing me and what I want versus loving them because they're God's children. It's a change that takes place. And do we respond as he clearly commanded us to respond by loving one another? John weaves it in, right? He, he has this ability to, to tie in this idea that we should love and we should be responding almost in an emotional way. And then he always hits a command. You need to love one another. You have to do this. This is your responsibility. You see, when we lack love, we obscure his covering love. 
So he, he's the propitiation. He's the covering for sin. He's the manifestation of love. And when we don't love, then we hide his sacrifice. So instead of exemplifying his sacrifice, we cover it up. When we lack love, we demean his sacrifice and manifest who we really are. Because, and this is the third one, love reveals our character. Love reveals our character. One, love fulfills our function. Look at verse 12. (coughs) No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We know from 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we're called uh, to be ambassadors. It says there, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. And so what we need to understand here is our love shows the world who Christ is. It, it, it paints the picture. It, it is the physical manifestation. Uh, one writer notes this, the unseen God thus reveals himself through the visible love of believers. No man has seen God at any time. Uh, Jesus is no longer physically present on earth. You don't walk outside and encounter Jesus like they would when he walked in Israel. You can't go hear him speak publicly. You can't go shake his hand. You can't go get healed by him in that physical way. So now people can only physically see God's love, biblical love, through us. How is God's love physically seen? And that's saying someone is here. And that's through us. We are the manifestation of his love. His love is perfected in us and points to him dwelling in us. Which brings us to another manner in which love reveals our character. Love assures us of his Holy Spirit. Look at 13 through 15. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, Because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Love assures us of the Holy Spirit, and his indwelling presence prompts proclamation of Christ. So if you're wondering if this is some kind of feeling that overtakes you, some type of experience you're going to have. And there's, there's a whole segment of Christianity I use in quotes that promotes this experience base, this feeling that overtakes you and you publicly manifest that feeling and suddenly you must be in Christ because you've had this overwhelming feeling come over you. Uh, John counteracts that without even confronting it directly because he says his indwelling presence prompts proclamation of Christ and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and actually in Greek the to be is gone and it would read this, that the Father sent the Son the Savior of the world. Very emphatically stating what he is. And that's what we'll talk about when we have the Holy Spirit. How are we assured of his presence? By what we talk about. It results in us proclaiming the biblical truth about the Son and the Father. And this is just a side note I I wrote down. In two verses there, John has touched on all of the Trinity from Spirit to Father and Son. One God and three persons. And so John, in his way, is emphasizing theology over and over again. And you see the triune God listed there. You see him manifested there. You see him talked about in both the Gospel of John and heavily then in 1st through 3rd John. Which brings us all the way back to God's love for us. 
You see, love reveals our character because love connects us to God, who is love. Look at verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Our love makes clear his love toward us. And I know John is back and forth. You have to always, whenever I'm reading this, this portion right here in John, it's, it's like he's repeating himself and going back and circling around. And you might look, look at this and say, Kenny, your, your points seem to repeat themselves a little bit. Yes, because the text repeats itself somewhat and moves in that circle. And that's how John is emphasizing it. Uh, I, I've said this before. If you're trying to make a point to your kids, uh, you tell them multiple times to do the same thing in different ways. If you ever heard your teacher say, in other words, that's what John is doing. In other words, and we're going to drive to a conclu- concluding point, And that's this, love. You should manifest love. That is a characteristic that every believer will have if they truly believe, not will end up having, but will manifest. So our love makes clear his love towards us. Our love makes clear that he is love and that we are intricately connected to him. We dwell in God and God dwells in us. There can't be a more, I put my fingers together that way, connected, interconnected way of looking at this. John is trying to emphasize the relationship And the reality of it, it's not that you shook hands with God, but you're holding hands with God idea, that it is completely connected. How do we know that? By our love, because his love for us and our love displayed out there, love connects us to God who is love, which prompts a fairly straightforward question. What has your love revealed about you? And again, John, as he's stating this and walking through this is without asking the question, is asking questions of the church. He's pushing the church to to say, do I love as Christ loved? Do I manifest the love of Christ to the church? Do I feel that way about them? And when we don't, we have to ask ourselves, where is selfishness propped up? And so he is, in his way, and and a very smooth uh, way of doing it, is confronting the church with a need that they have. He's not saying this because they're loving. He's writing this because they're not loving. He's confronting a fault in them and he's trying to get them to think, what does my love tell me about myself? Does it fulfill your biblical function? Does it assure you of the Holy Spirit's presence and does it connect you to God? You see, love changes our disposition. It changes how we think and feel about life and eternity, and this is the final one, love results in our confidence. We are confident in Christ. Let me look at verses 17 through 19. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. We are confident in Christ. Perfected love reveals our status, which gives us boldness in the day of judgment. This is a powerful verse here. God the Father treats the saints as he does the Son, because as he is, so are we. 
As we look towards boldness, looking forward to judgment, the end, eternity, why are we bold? Well, it's not us. I'm not bold in my own actions, but I'm bold in Christ because as his child, God the Father says, I will treat you as I treat my son. We are viewed as the son is viewed. Thus, perfected love dispels fear. We long for his return because we have no fear of punishment. Biblical love on display in our lives removes the dread of punishment from our hearts. Uh, one writer noted this, and it always convicts me when someone writes this personally. They said, if you're not looking forward to the return of Christ, take a look at your heart. And I oftentimes look and I am selfishly wanting to live my life. God, wait another 40, 50. And I always tell people I want to live to 120. So make it 80 more years, right? And then, then come on back. You see, that, that reveals something about myself. It reveals where my focus is. It reveals where my love is. But when we are truly loving the church and manifesting his love and actually responding in love to him, fear is dispelled. So the unknown is no longer an unknown that we dread, but instead we look forward to eternity because we're not facing judgment. We're facing God the Father looking at us as he looks at his son It dispels fear. Ultimately, we see then that perfected love reacts to Christ's love. Look at 19 again. We love him because he first loved us. And what a relief, I write, that my love is not generated by me, but instead is prompted by his love. And I love that John returns to this. How are you able to love this way? How is it even possible? Because he loved you. Because he redeemed you. Because he died for you. We're not worried that our love will dry up because our love, if we are truly believers, cannot dry up because it's not contingent on us. We're able to love the church because he loved us. His love is the fountain of potential love from us and through us. And I always find that encouraging because I always mention this. Maybe I shouldn't reveal this to everyone, but I suffer from irritability syndrome. You know, I get irritated with people. And so at some point I'm like, I'm irritated with humanity, you know, and then it's time to, to not be around people. Um, doesn't happen all the time, but once in a while, right? And so when that occurs, and maybe you have varying degrees of that irritability syndrome, and, and you think, there's no way I can love people. I, I can't even stand to be around people. I don't even want to see people. Well, that's not driven by my emotions and my irritability or my problems, but instead I recognize I can love because he first loved me. John then wraps this discussion up. I put in a neat bow by reiterating the implications of love and how that love is shown. Look at verses 20 through 21. And if you're breaking it out in paragraphs, this would launch a new paragraph, closing out this chapter. So this is John's application or wrap up for what he's been talking about. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And so John is wrapping up everything and and he's, he's putting it in a way that they can Walk out of the room with it, so to speak, as we leave um, 
worship, and any time we're leaving worship, we should be taking what we hear and applying it to our lives. And this is John's application for them. He's saying to them, you can talk about loving God, and if you hate your brother, then you are a liar. Remember the false teaching, right? There was this whole idea of, of a higher plane that was reached. And, and if I become and reach this higher plane, I'm an elite, and all you peons are nothingness to me. What is that showing? Selfish love for, for you and focused on you and your group and disdain for the church. And, and John is saying, you're a liar. You don't love God. I do love God. I've attained a higher knowledge of God. I'm super smart now with God. God thinks I'm special. And John is basically saying, no, he doesn't. You don't know him is what he's saying. And so you look at these people that maybe walk through all these different steps. So the, the, the legalists, the Pharisees, and all these things they're going to do. And, and John is saying, but you don't love God's people. And therefore, you don't love God. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. See, we are responsive in love because of Christ. If we love Christ, we will love his children. That's just, it's not, John doesn't leave any room for negotiation. Well, most people will love him, but I don't need to love him. Well, see, there you got the Gnostic idea. I am above something else. That's just not my personality. That's not my role. That's not my giftedness. There's no such thing as role, giftedness, or function when it comes to love. Love is who you are as a believer. God is love, and because we reveal God's character, we will love, and we will love his children. And to make it perfectly simple, John states, if we are believers, we are commanded to love God and love his church. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So just in case there's someone sitting in his church, when John is writing to them, 100 AD or a little bit before that, and he says to them, just in case you're not picking up on this, God told you to do this. So if you need a direct marching orders, you need to be told very specifically what you need to do. You want no room for misinterpretation. God says, love him and love his church. Love manifested through us prompts confidence in Christ. It proves us and results in a peace in facing eternity. Really, more than a peace, it's a boldness and eagerness in facing it. And it allows us to know God's love and therefore not to be fearful. Actually, fear, John says, is an indication of something being wrong. When I fear Christ's return, then it shows me something about myself. It's not God. See, the world, doesn't the world love to throw that out against God? Oh, God wants to judge everyone and God has his rules and God expects people to follow along and, and he's going to judge us. And they're, they're talking about this idea of authority and of fear that they have. Well, that just proves who they are. They're not his children because they fear him. See, fear is removed by the cross, by being redeemed by his love. So fear is an indication of something being wrong. I put here as a question, does your love highlight the reality of his love for you? Do you take a highlighter and say, God loves me, and you highlight it? How are you highlighting it? How are you emphasizing it? How are you pointing to it by your love for others? Does it dispel fear, replacing it with peace and boldness? And I put here, if you have true biblical love, it will. MacArthur notes this, that perfect love far transcends any kind of feeling the world might experience. 
It is a complete, mature love that reflects the essence of God and the work of Christ and flows through believers to anybody with a need. One of the most important needs, I would say, or things to lock in our brain is this reality that the world's definition of love and God's definition of love are completely different and that only one of them is real love. And that's God's love. And it's a love that responds or reflects, again, the essence of God and what Christ has done for you and then flows through us. Don't miss that part. Flows through believers to anybody with a need. So I put here as a kind of closing question, does that describe your love? Does that describe your love? Does your love reflect God's character? Does it respond to his sacrifice? Does it reveal your relationship with him and result in your confidence because of him? Does your love do that? Let's pray together. If I thank for the opportunity we have to come and worship you, uh, to look at your word as we walk walk through what John has written uh, to the early church and been inspired to write to all of us as believers, this idea of love. And though it may be hard for us emotionally as we look at our, our own lives and as we look and, and see how we have been responding to the church. I hope that uh, if there needs to be a change, a change takes place. That we recognize that you are love and that we are the manifestation of your love. We are the testimony. We are the ambassadors. And you work uh, through us manifesting your love for humanity through your church, through your children. And as we look at these I hope that we can be analytical of our own lives. It will take a real moment to look and say, uh, does my love reveal your character? Am I responding to your sacrifice? Have I changed? Does it overcome even my own personality? Do I see my relationship with you and how I live out your love? And does it result in confidence to you? Am I looking forward to seeing my Savior, to being with you for all eternity? confront our hearts and minds that we will act upon the words that are written here in scripture, that we'll be confronted and manifest your love to the world around us. In your precious and holy name, amen.